Look at all these topics just popping up at the last minute. I'm using a breathe right strip tonight. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if Mythbusters ever did a test on those. Like, I know the idea is like that they're pulling open your nasal passages, but yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah, but this is, you know, from your mouth to God's ear. It's like, uh, you know, if it makes me feel. Yeah, it's like Dumbo's feather. I get it. <laughs> Why do I think that's Pete's dragon? Is there a feather in Pete's dragon? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say Dumbo's feather, Zuzu's petals. Zuzu's petals. Um, yeah, well, you know, I'm trying some new things. I haven't consulted you about this, but uh, I've been considering uh, refactoring the code in our Google Doc. Yeah, you've sort of taken over, like, the, it was it was a mess. It didn't have, really have a system. It was like, are we deleting the same document and rewriting it every time? And then you started doing the push-down thing where you'd make a new thing and then keep pushing stuff down but trying to maintain, a, like, a long tail section. I'm not quite sure what's going on, but I, I leave it to you for the most part. As long as I go there and I see the same list of potential future topics hanging around. You don't really pay compliments, do you? Do I have to pay for them? I thought they were free. <laughs> Let's see. Well, you know, sometimes I think there's this thing you get. I perceive that you get frustrated when I add things to follow up. Well, maybe I'm getting this from your other programs. No, but I, no, I think it's fine. You well, know. I don't. I think you don't like things in follow up that are not actually follow up. You like no. it to be. This is where you make corrections. You uh, share feedback. So now I'm thinking about this new area you can see down here called mini topics. Yeah, no, I see it. I see that the font is a little bit smaller there too. Hmm. Maybe it's a different font. What do we got there? Yeah. Arial. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it's all Arial in here. I don't know. I changed the heading fonts. Oh, follow up. We should have a section on follow up. Merryweather. What is it? Merryweather Sands. Looks kind of like a poor man's myriad. <laughs> I added a topic called follow up. <laughs> <laughs> You'll remember why you put it there. I will. I will remember. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's, we should dive right in for your your follow up. We have exciting news about your telephone that lives in a purse underwater. <laughs> SpongeBob Square Phone. Yep, that's what I was going for. Badly. Um. So, as previously reported here and elsewhere, my wife's uh, iPhone 6s Plus went into the drink. The drink being her purse filled with water, not pointing fingers, and it was dead, dead, dead. And time passed. And I know you know this, but I'm sharing this, sharing this with our listeners. Time passed, and we went through the whole thing of maybe trying to get a 7 and doing a little bit of rotation with phones. And uh, a listener, friend person on Twitter, sent me this really useful little uh, screen grab of this table. It's like, hey, have you thought about taking this into Apple? Because, uh, you know, here's the prices for fixing, you know, an iPhone. And I saw the word Apple Care. And a long neglected light bulb in my head went off, and I went panel plan. <laughs> Lisa needs Apple Care. Yep. And uh, I, uh, I went, huh, huh. That's actually the noise my brain made. I went, huh. And I thought, you know, I, something in me, you know, usually when I buy a costly Apple device, even though I never use it, I superstitiously buy Apple Care Plus, and then promptly forget that you've done that. And then promptly forget that I've done that. And then I had this sickening, wonderful, wonderful, sickening feeling of like, oh, I have a feeling I have Apple Care Plus on this. 
And I went to the Gmail and I did a search. And indeed, I found an email that I sent whenever I get this on one of her devices. I always, I don't know why, but I email her, like CC her the like, okay, here's the information on your warranty and your Apple Care in case it ever comes up. I'm sure she appreciates that. She loves, oh, we should just, you know what, make that a topic. Things my wife loves that I do. Um, and it uh, turns out we are covered by Apple Care Plus. And it took me, I don't know. From the time of realization, the total amount of time from like time of realization to getting, getting this thing on the way to being settled was about 18 minutes. So I went to the site, I put in the serial number, I detached it from Find My Phone. This will be funny in a minute. I detached it from Find My Phone. And I, uh, yeah, and they, they called me back and said, hey, what's up, Merlin? How's your phone? And I was like, it's totally dead. I realized the thing is, it went in water. And everything I've ever heard is, if your phone is water damaged, don't even bother you're just going to become like a Polaroid on the billboard back, back, uh, backstage. Like, look at this idiot. Look at this idiot bringing in a water phone. And she said, well, how many of your uh, incidents have you used? And I said, I'm not sure what an incident is, but I haven't had any because I forgot that I had this. She said, well, here's the deal. Bring it in. We'll fix it. And if we can't fix it, we will give you a new iPhone for $99. How about that? Sounds like a deal. It's busy right now because lots of people go into the store to, you know, go uh, fondle the the jet black and stuff. And, eh, you know, there's lines. And so the soonest uh, appointment I could get was like, you know, five days later, um, which I admitted to you, I'm an idiot. I forgot that. I'm an idiot. But I was buoyed and my wife was thrilled because now she's going to get a phone. Now, how about this? You ready for an Apple story? I go in there. Very nice lady helps me out. She's like, yep, yep, totally fine. She, you know, did a little quickie thing. She stuck in the plug and said, oh, yeah, yeah this thing's totally screwed. She, uh, somebody walks by and deposits an iPhone 6S in a box. Like, not a new box. Interesting fact to know. But a little box with some funny markings on it. And like, okay, here's going to be the new iPhone 6S. I was like, oh, is it okay if I take a photo of that to send my wife to show her that she's getting a new phone? She said, well, actually, you can't take a photo of that because it's got uh, my words here, like top secret glyphs that represent the internal system. This cannot be revealed. She does a little bit more mumbo jumbo. I think she might have plugged it in and done something. I take it home. I get my wife's phone. She's thrilled. I do a full iTunes encrypted backup of her phone four times just to be sure. Transfer purchases, whole nine. Uh, And when I went to activate her phone, her new phone, it says it can't activate it because it's already associated with another iCloud account. And it gives you basically P, in this case, it was P, five dots, at iCloud.com. We don't have anybody in our family that's P.iCloud. And it wouldn't have mattered anyway, because immediately I'm like, oh, man, that that's associated with this serial numbered phone at Apple. And I called them up. This is so boring. Why am I telling you this? And then they said, uh, yeah. I was like, is there any chance that maybe this is a, a return? He said it would be a near new, a near new return. But yeah, there's a chance it's a return. But apparently turns out either A, Apple forgot to wipe the other person's find my phone off of there, or B, the nice lady who helped me might have accidentally made it her iPhone. So I had to make another appointment a week later. So I'm going in tomorrow. I don't think she accidentally made it her iPhone. I think the the return or other failure to wipe, but there was a more reasonable explanation. I don't think there's any reason that the person helping you would have to sign in with their Apple ID. Why would they ever do that? She logged into iCloud in front of me. With her account? Yeah. Or, well, a, a, I don't know. I don't, I'm don't. i not a genius, as you know. 
But uh, yeah, so I got to go back in. But I felt like a little bit of a crazy person because, of course, you, you know, this goes back to a conversation from a couple months ago. I'm sitting there. First of all, I got to get onto my Wi-Fi, which is a better password than I need for stupid Wi-Fi. That didn't work. And I said, okay, fine, fine. Activate via cellular. And I thought, and already I'm feeling crazy. And then I get to the screen and I know her password. Her recently changed password and her iCloud. And I go in like four tries. And then I go, wait a minute, stop. Like, don't do the thing. You know what I mean? Don't, don't make this thing crazy and shut everything down. And of course, I did look then and saw that in tiny text, it said that it's already associated with this Apple ID. Doesn't that seem weird? Doesn't it seem like something they wouldn't miss? Doesn't that seem odd? Well, it's a busy store. They're doing a lot of things. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't like the whole idea of getting refurbished phones anyway. I like, oh, neither. No. It's not that good. Oh, well, yeah. I imagine. I mean, ordinarily, before this happened, I would go, oh, no big deal. It's probably something where it might have even been like one of those kinds of returns, like a Marco return, where somebody bought two phones and then just sent one back unopened. I thought maybe it would be something like that. But now after this, I'm like, ugh, now I got to go through and like describe all this and you know, not sound like a jerk. But she'll have a phone eventually. But hey, remember, if you've got Apple Care Plus, use it. It's one to grow on. Sure, this will all work out. Yeah. And then, and then, and then three days later, she'll drop the phone on the sidewalk. Oh, my Uber driver today, boy. Shattered, just shattered screen on his uh, 6S Plus. Yeah, he recently adopted an energetic dog. Yeah, this will all be better when the next iPhone comes out and it's entirely made of glass. Yeah, that's going to be pretty sweet. Nothing but screen. Do you get Apple Care Plus on things? I do, for the most part, uh, especially things that are droppable, that I'm mm-hmm. carrying around. And it's like 120 bucks usually to replace a screen, right? That's what this guy said. It's like 130 bucks. Yeah, whatever it is, I figure it's worthwhile just because like, I don't want a refurbished or, or a phone with a screen replaced or anything. I don't want that, but I also don't want to pay like another 800 and something bucks because the thing with the phone is like, what are you going to do, not have a phone? Of course, right. you're, gonna, you're just going to pay it. So that's just, you know, silly insurance that I pay. She had to travel for five days with the 5S, and she was not loving it. Because, of course, it's got a 5S battery in it now, too, right? It's, yeah. it's the whole package. No, you can't go back again. Yeah. I mm, I, don't, I shouldn't even say this. Yes, you know I'm not a superstitious person. But uh, I've never had the need to purchase that service in the whatever nine years that I've had an iPhone. You mean you haven't bought it or you've never used but you've bought it but never used it? I've never even had a crack. No, I'm, I'm, I don't baby it like you do. I don't have like a like a bespoke case for it and a case for the case. It. I'm not babying my phone. I just I use it like a normal phone. I just don't drop it. Or actually, that's not even true. I have dropped it off of like my dresser onto the rug next to my bed, but that doesn't break it. It's fine. But you get a case for your case when you travel. Yeah, but that's just for like, you know, wiping off fingerprints and stuff. It's not, it's, it's like a soft little bag. It doesn't protect it from impacts. If I dropped it in that bag onto the sidewalk, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure it would still crack the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had some, right. some strange responses from listeners about how you put your iPhone in your pocket. It's, it's one of those things where, like, you know, some people, uh, not me, are really torqued up about, like, your home screen. But some of those people are just are crazy the way they carry their iPhone. For me, it's left pocket, screen in, lightning port up, and headphone port up. I mean, how could you, how could you, how, how, could, how do people put a phone in their pocket with the headphone port down? That seems so weird to me. I had, haven't heard from any of the screen out people, but I bet they exist because of the change pocket thing. 
A lot of people have been citing the change pocket, you know, the little, the pocket inside a pocket on jeans. Oh, right. On the, oh, if you're one of those right pocket animals. Yeah. Uh, on, the, on the right hand side, right? And so I can imagine someone saying, I want to avoid the little rivets on that. So I do screen out. No one has actually admitted to that yet, but they're probably out there. <sighs> I did never even every device I've ever had that wasn't like a uh, flip phone. I mean, it just seemed intuitively obvious to me. I have not really thought this out, but I never thought for a second to have it anyway, but screen in. It just seems like it's, you're statistically better off in terms of the chance of like bumping into something. It's great when you get into a car accident, the shards of glass will go directly into your thigh. That's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. That's really true. Yeah. That's what you need. Something else to worry about. How, is your iPhone 6 bent? <laughs> Let me put it this way. You have not seen it. So I may not know that it's been. What an awful thing you do! I can't believe you do that to people because I don't. I don't think it's bent, but you might look at it and do like a no. You do an Apollo you can find Robbins out right now. It. Hold it up in front of your eye. Put it on a flat desk. There's many ways you can determine the answer to this question eh, right now. It's in a leather case. It looks good. Looks good. You yeah. Sure. <laughs> you you already killed my checklist. People who have powerful glasses like me. Uh, it's very difficult to assess the straightness of things that extend to pass a certain distance because of <laughs> you get lens, lens distortion. Lens distortion, <laughs> right? So you can really drive yourself crazy. Like, wait, is that is that bent or is it just near the edges of my lenses? Right. It's not then like a pool cue. You can't just like roll it around and see if it's exactly. Then you, well, then you need to put it on a flat table, and you're like, is this table flat? Question everything. <laughs> the most amazing part, I you you seem to cope so well in life, and yet I. The, the amount of necessary, like built-in self-doubt you have in your life is horrifying to me. I don't know how you. I don't know how you don't fool yourself about more things. Maybe I do. No. <laughs> uh, it's, all, it's all built this in. Show this is, is like, over. This is this is bought and paid for. This is not like these. You may be hearing these things and like, oh, I hadn't thought of that before. I've I've thought of that before. Like, you know what? This it's it's Syracuse's incompleteness theorem. It's no, that right? Because I mean, it's like every time we think we know what's going on, like it's not really a full theory if you're not worried. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, at this point, it's all, I don't know what the right phrase is, but it's all built in. It's all like part of the package. It's an all inclusive vacation. Like, it's all, you just pay one price and you get it all. I've already, I've already paid. It's already in there. So it's not. Like they say about stock, it's already built into the price. Yeah, exactly. Gratuity included because it's a group of uh, 10 or more anxieties. I get a package deal. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Casper. You can learn more about Casper right now by visiting casper.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. Make sure you use the special offer code diffs at the time of purchase. That'll get you 50% off your mattress. Casper is a company that is focused on sleep. They've created one perfect mattress and sells that directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven and inflated prices. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing the savings directly to you, the consumer. Its award-winning mattress was developed in-house. It has a sleek design. It is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper now also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. You can't believe this thing until you actually sleep on it. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foam, to create a mattress that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. It has a breathable design, helps you regulate your temperature through the night, and you're not going to believe the price. Mattresses today frequently will cost you over $1,500. Casper mattresses cost $500 for a twin, all the way up to $950 for a king. They are made in America. I've been sleeping on one for two years, and I can tell you real talk, I love this thing. It is just the best. It's going to blow your mind. Buying a Casper mattress is actually a completely risk-free proposition. 
They offer free delivery and free returns to the U.S. and Canada with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. They understand the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend one-third of your life on it. So please go to casper.com slash diffs. And if you use that very special offer code diffs at checkout, you're going to get $50 toward any mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. More follow-up. Uh, you know what? You've talked about this so much. Who cares? I, I'm just curious. In If you want to say, in passing, so, we, you know, we've got the curse. We've got the Mr. Show curse on here where we record before... This is often the first place many things from our other shows are discussed, but you never know it because it's released after subsequent shows where we get to actually like talk about it at length. The, the original discussion, I think, for you about lasers and accessibility was here, but then you went into excruciating detail in two episodes – and you had, it seems like your position, especially two ATPs ago, it sounds to me like your position had hardened even further than when we talked, that you were, you were, you were good and disappointed about the way that the uh, reduced motion interacted with the whole laser thing. I think this whole topic benefited, in quotes if you want, from a pair of antagonists on the other program. Like, you know, when I talk, talked about it with you, you seem reasonably sympathetic. And it's like, yeah, well, whatever. I'm totally sympathetic. I think it's weird. I think I think it's weird that these things and I, I feel like I heard myself sa- sounding very insensitive and ableist. And I didn't mean to. I was not trying to say accessibility is well, I said use the word ghetto, which is a poor choice of words. And I apologize. What I really meant to say was that there are certain kinds of tweaks that that do benefit everybody. And by putting them in this area, people wouldn't think to look, you deny them the chance to use this phone in a way that might make them a lot happier. That's that was what i very what i meant to say and i didn't say and i ended up saying something i didn't mean yeah and that's categorically all getting that specific thing uh there are things that are in the accessibility section of the preferences in ios that are on by default i had a, had a, a couple of them listed in some notes that i've since lost but you buy a brand new iphone out of the box you can go into accessibility and find things on there that are turned on right further emphasizing the idea that, I mean, you know, that settings is kind of a mess in terms of categories, but that there's not some kind of hard line between features that you're quote unquote supposed to use and not supposed to use. Like, because if they're putting them on by default, they just assume that most people want this. Like, it's the majority at that point. Well, depending on how depending on how you look at it, how you measure it, there's lots of stuff that is a default setting in accessibility. You just haven't realized it yet. For example, the size of the of the type, the size of the fonts on your screen. Is a, is technically, I, I would say, technically an accessibility preset. Maybe not the brightness of your phone, but things like there's all kinds of things where a decision has been made on the user's behalf that they presumably think will benefit lots of people. It's just that, you know, did you follow what I'm saying? Like there's, there's just because if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, reachability is the main one I was thinking of. The little double tap the home button to pull yeah. the screen halfway down. That's mm-hmm. on by default. It's in accessibility. It's on by default. Like so, is that, there's no real argument to be made that, that that you're not supposed to touch those unless you pass some you know bar or whoever gets to decide that. But but anyway, like I said, my when we talked about it, I think it was more just like complaining about something that seemed weird and absurd. But then the uh, the other two guys on ATP thought my entire position was didn't make any sense to them, and of course they're woefully incredibly wrong and i had to explain that to them at length and that's why that went on for as long as it did and then it produced lots of feedback no new changes on that front other than a a continuing steady trickle of people uh 
tweeting and emailing me to say that they couldn't figure out why they couldn't send lasers. They've had reduced motion off since iOS 7, didn't know it. They turned it on themselves and forgot about it. Uh, one person said uh, that he couldn't stand two episodes of me complaining about reduced motion. It's just like, just deal with it. Like, that's the way the OS is. And then he realized he'd had it on since iOS 7. And he turned it off, and he's like, whoa, this is what it's supposed to look like. I'm still, I still can't. Now it's been a couple of weeks, and I'm over two weeks, and I still find it incredibly garish. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind it. Like, I know I decided it as an aesthetic preference, but it's, I don't know how else to phrase it. Like, but I, I like the animations. I think they serve a useful purpose. It just so happens that my eyes track them in a way that makes me slightly uncomfortable, like that I find myself drawn to them following these animations that I shouldn't be following because they're no longer... They're no longer adding any value for me. And I, and I like how they look. I think they're cool effects, especially when they're smooth. I think they're well done. Like, so really, it would be more accurate to say aesthetically, I like them. But the experience of using the phone with them on, I find it sort of builds up it, it to be slightly disconcerting to me, which is why I choose that off. Anyway, um, there's that little preference in the beta that doesn't do anything yet. I hope eventually it will do something. And mm-hmm. when it, if and when it finally does, I will collect my one dollar from my gentleman's bet with case of this and i will enjoy life filled with confetti balloon and lasers i would not want to portray myself as being a particularly woke person about any given topic but like anybody like many people i try to get better about things and as far as under not understanding as far as thinking in a slightly more modern grown-up way about what's come to be called accessibility my entree to that, I don't know if this was anywhere near your entree, but, you know, um, it came at me a funny way, and it's Zeldman's orange book. So, you know, you look at the soup of HTML that we were all making, you know, back when CSS was just a, a kind of a crazy, not widely supported idea, and all the nested tables, and all that crazy stuff. But, you know, I mean, it's funny to me that, like, and like I say, I'm, I'm not trying to put myself out there as being some kind of, like, especially uh, smart or, or sensitive person, but... It, he made such a great case for saying, doing this stuff right, doing this structured HTML, um, it doesn't have to be ugly. It does not have to be plain. Um, it does not have to be onerous to maintain. Everything you think you know about this stuff is is probably a little bit half-baked or out of date. And he just showed it page after page. He would just show how, you know... You don't even really need to know what a JAWS reader is, but trust me, if you do this kind of markup, you're going to help a lot of people, including yourself. Your code is going to be more maintainable. And for me, it became this like this game, like where I wanted. I mean, I wanted every page. To, I didn't. It didn't need to validate, but like it felt really good to me to know to just, like understand that more now and to realize that something that more of us are understanding today, which is that t- it's a cliche, but accessibility helps everybody. There is no one that is harmed by a ramp. Everybody is going to need that ramp eventually. And like, it's such a no-brainer when you think about producing something that helps literally everybody. And I'm sure you'll have examples about how I'm wrong. But like, that was such a wake-up call for me. I remember riding around on Muni and reading that book and just, just felt like the scales fell from my eyes. I felt like there was so much into like a world I had not really even thought of before. The ramp is a great example because the, uh, the thing you see in real life all the time that gives a bad name to accessibility and is a perfect example of why you should build it in. And there, there are definitely analogies to the, the web development world is where you'll see a building where the ramp has been clearly been added after the fact to a building where there was no, there was no place for it to go, but they had to add it for regulation reasons. Like they had planned out the whole building. It's going to be this way or whatever. And either they forgot about it or didn't, you didn't realize that the inspector was going to 
know that the ADA exists or whatever. And so they're like, oh, we have to add it. And because there was like five or six steps or they didn't have a lot of space to put it, they end up putting this ramp on in a way that looks tacked on. It takes up a huge amount of room and the railings are blocking everything and it just looks unharmonious. And you're like, see, this is what happens if you do accessibility. Your buildings will look ugly. It's like if you build it in from the beginning and exactly. think about it from day one, it doesn't have to be a monstrosity. And the same thing with, with uh, websites where... If you try to take this disgusting tag soup and like, oh, I'm going to make it accessible after the fact, you'll be miserable and the site will be worse. But you have to build it in from the beginning. Although all that stuff, including just plain old validation, getting back to the, the web world, like the depressing thing about Zeldin's book and his efforts and everything <laughs> is that you quickly learn if you work in the world of web development as I have for basically my entire career, that the main reason most of that stuff doesn't happen is because it's it's beneath the level of concern of the people who are in charge of building the thing. There's like this hierarchy of like make money, uh, you know, growth, feed my ego, like all sorts of priorities of the founders and the people who make the decisions. And it's unless people who are believers in quality workmanship and all these other things are very high in the organization. It's so difficult to make the argument, like all those arguments that we find so convincing about whole web standards and accessibility and all that stuff to say, this is a thing that we should do because they're like, should we though? Seems more important to do whatever this priority is to keep the lights on or whatever. And just, it ends up, it just gets pushed down and pushed down and pushed down. And it's like, oh sure. If we come to that glorious day when we have tons of money coming in and tons of free time and like, we have enough staff to do everything we want to do. This will be done in the extra stuff. And then we can really put that polish on it. But even then, it's like, you know, don't go plate it. Don't do too much than you have to. Minimum viable products. Like all sorts of buzzwords that you can throw to convince yourself that you shouldn't do a good job. Right? And there's a million of those. There's an unlimited supply. And in my experience, the main reason stuff doesn't get done like that is because the people making the decisions never value that high enough to actually do it at all even if everyone who's working for them on the front lines typing stuff believes in that it's not prioritized and that's mm-hmm. that's that's the it's, sad part it's also um and i my web development career was much shorter and less illustrious than yours but something um i learned even around like you know like smart savvy people but or even like you know decent people is that there's a funny kind of I want to almost say like black and white thinking, but or approaching group thing. But there's, if you're trying to do something new, that let's even say the industry has realized is valuable. You know, before HIPAA, before I'm sorry, I don't want to trigger you. Before HIPAA, before Sarbanes-Oxley, before whatever, any of these different kinds of things, there have always been people that have said, "Hey, you know, we could probably be doing this a lot better." And the, my my experience, this sounds negative and cynical, and I don't know if it's as cynical as yours, but I think. I think it only takes one person's minor objection to an idea like that to shut the whole process down. That's the part that's a bummer. It takes, it's almost like I was, I was explaining the ERA to my daughter today and how, how hard it is to pass an amendment. And in that case, it's basically an amendment that says women and men should be treated the same, which is, seems more sane to me every day. At the time, it seemed revolutionary, but you got to pass that in every state. And then it has to pass, what, a majority, supermajority in Congress? Like, an amendment is hard to pass. And that's what it is. When you're trying to do something like say, hey, look, you know, this this uh, Frankenstein code we've been putting together, like, it's it's horrible to maintain. Plus, there's this giant benefit if we do it this way. And this isn't even getting into the kinds of stuff you can do with style now. But isn't that kind of the thing? Is It, it doesn't take – it isn't like there's going to be this seasoned um, you know, kind of lively debate about what, whether this is a good idea – 
you don't even get to that conversation because all it really takes is one even minor objection for everybody to go, yeah, you're right. That's probably a rat hole. You don't need the objection. You don't even get a hearing to further strain this analogy. Like you don't even get to the point where there is even a discussion of the topic. Like it doesn't even get, it doesn't even get to the floor or whatever. You get, you whatever get an eye roll. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and here's the thing about it. Like the objections are all founded in truth. In many cases, people can spend a long time making sure everything is beautiful and missing the fact that like their business plan is stinks. Right. And they should have been concentrated on something else. Right. And in many cases, there will be a successful business that has a beautiful website, and the people who have that successful business will attribute their success to the beautiful website, when in fact, it is not attributable to that at all. But it, really what it comes down to is, you know, uh, pride and workmanship. Do you want to have uh, done a good job doing this thing? It's kind of like, you know, you have to use analogies that people are more comfortable with as their more old world. And then they can wrap their brains around. I usually don't like analogies. Uh, for the most part, I feel like the thing is the thing, and that should be understandable. But especially in this sort of work that people aren't familiar with who haven't done it, you have to make it something really like building furniture, right? You could be building the wrong thing. People don't want desks. You built too many desks, and in fact, people want chairs instead, or people want couches, or, you know, whatever. Um, all, all this is saying is, if you're going to build a desk, build a decent desk, right? If you're going to build a chair... Build a chair that you can be proud of. A decent desk by design, like with the first cut, ra- rather than saying we'll fix this in a year. Right. And, and you know, and it doesn't have to be an amazing chair. It could be a very simple chair, right? It could be made of very simple materials. It, no, you know, fancy metal working or whatever. It could just be a wood chair. We'll make a decent chair. And if it turns out that you made the wrong chair uh, or shouldn't be making chairs at all, don't blame it on the fact that you did a good job on the chair by all means adjust and say actually we shouldn't be doing this we should be something entirely different but like if you don't build that in from the beginning it's always the thing that'll get pushed to the side well you know quality is job eight billion right (laughs) you can always just uh if there's something we can cut if there's a corner we can cut we can cut it uh and like that's and i don't know like i don't even know if it's uh it's rational from the perspective for the person doing the building because they're optimizing for their own job satisfaction in many respects and for their own sort of life satisfaction. Like, cause you can say like, it's not rational for you know, the CEO should say, I don't care how good a job you do on the chair. I want to figure out what we need to build. I don't want you guys spending your time fretting about how to build a chair. We don't even know if we're supposed to even be building chairs. You're wasting your time, right? We need to figure out if we should be building couches or boats or something. And if you're going to spend a long time, it's like, well, we want to do a good job in the chair, right? So that's that's what the CEO is optimizing for, like the survival of the company or whatever. But the people who are making it are optimizing not just for their job satisfaction. It's saying, I won't feel good if I make a crappy chair. Even if it turns out we're not supposed to be making chairs, I still won't feel good. And also their long-term life satisfaction. You say, I spent my entire career doing what I knew to be a bad job as fast as I possibly could in service of an effort to find out what we should be doing to let the company survive. That's not a satisfying experience. Um, and again, I wouldn't say it's cause and effect, but certainly if you happen to figure out that you're supposed to be making couches and you happen to figure that out at the same time as three of your competitors and your couches suck, you're not going to do well. Uh, so it's complicated, but as someone who is uh, on the front lines making things, it's hard for me to uh, argue that you should uh, do a bad job in all respects because that's what's best for the business or whatever. Because hey, I haven't seen that in real life because I see very little connection between qual- quality of the job and how successful you are. So it's like, well, it's, it's not positive, it's not negative, but it's neutral. Uh, but from the perspective of the people doing it, 
it's not neutral in terms of how you feel about what you do for a living or when you're done when you retire, how will you feel about what you have done for a living? Oh, well put. Um, I was, I think I'm remembering this correctly. I was working in the same room as Doug Bowman um, when he, I want to say this was supposed to be 2003, I think. Um, do you remember when he put out that redesign of Stop Design that would do all the stuff with IDs, like body IDs? Or, yeah, I think it was body IDs. But, you know, I guess today this is, you know, th- things like descendancy and inheritance and all those kinds of things are like everybody's doing that. I haven't touched that stuff in years. But I'll never forget sitting there and, like, you would go to a page and, like, the color of the background in the header was controlled by, like, a, I think it was a body ID. Or was it by, not body or title? But basically he was able... I mean, to me, like, that, that, that's the other side of this, is you take something like the Zeldman-esque ideas of, like, what you do to have this, you know, sturdy, simple code, and then to, to, to say, well, gosh, well, now you're going to have this, this really plain site. You're going to have one of those really boring sites that doesn't have cool graphics and stuff. But, and I, forgive me, because I know I'm talking way beyond stuff. This is stuff you, you've known for years. But do you remember that? Where, like, you would go to a certain area of the site, and the entire color of the page would change the images would change and it was all pretty much done with one id tag we was basically able to say like you know the inheritance of like i want to say it was body but it was like basically now when you're on this in this area of the site now everything's going to be green in these areas and it's going to work like this and this is the state of the buttons and before that that used to be me and image ready having to like re-slice all the buttons every time we wanted those to be different and it was just such a revelation that this stuff wasn't just some kind of puritanical idea of, you know, this Mark Pilgrim idea of being tightly wound just because. Like, it had this actual purpose in usability and then and in findability, right? Just shoot, just in SEO, like, how much better? Like, human-readable, like, sites with, with good H tags. But then that, I just remember, and he showed me the code, and I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, you made the way this whole page looks change with, like, one ID tag. It was revolutionary at the time. It's like a CSS Zen Garden was the other well-known example of trying to convince people that this right. is a thing. Remember that? Where it's the same page and people would just supply different style sheets for it and it would look radically different to try to convince people this is a thing. Now, I would still say that that whole technique is still beyond the means of most people making websites. Especially with a team, right? I mean, isn't that part of it? Is like when you're working on a team and I don't know, I just, I, I don't know, I don't I haven't worked on a team like that in years, but it seems like a huge part of that would be like, I just need to make sure my shark, my part of the code has to have this kind of closing tag and th- this kind of opening and closing tag. And like, let's not monkey with what works. Well, the, the problem now is that there are so many different possible approaches. And like, just like in programming, it's so much easier to have two or three smart programmers make a, a coherent program than it is to have 200 programmers make a coherent program. Um, so a lot of the modern techniques are not so much about, like, we moved on from, like, the basics of being convinced this is a thing to say, how do you take a team of several hundred people and give them a system where they can all work and add features and stuff in a way that doesn't make a mess? Mm-hmm. And so you'll see a lot of that, a lot of the presentations, like, at an event apart or whatever, people from big companies like Facebook saying, here's how we have managed, given the current state of web technology, to make large number of developers do something according to a system that will essentially because they're not all going to be uh web technology experts they're just not like there's there you can't you can't have a company of hundreds of hundreds of you know uh you know bowman's or zelman's or whatever like you that's not how it works right Mm -hmm. and you can't say oh 
well, they'll just teach and everybody will be as good as them. That won't happen either. It's true of it. It's true of programming. It's true of design. It's true of everything. You have to, it, you start shifting to say, okay, this works when you have a small group of people who are like uh, near the top of their field. But when you have hundreds of people with a huge range, can those people at the top of their field come up with a system that helps other people be able to do good work staying within the line? So that's where you get things like grid systems or like object-oriented CSS and all various different systems that people try to, and that's the same thing with programming methodologies, agile and stuff like that. Like you don't need a prescriptive programming methodology if you're just a super good programmer on a small team because you'll just all work it out, right? But let's just all work it out because we're smart people. It does not scale to hundreds of developers. So a lot of that seems boring. And if you go to like a web design conference, you'll see lots of these presentations. And you're like, how does this apply to me making my beautiful artisanal website for my portfolio? Well, it doesn't really unless you're just practicing. But like there's a reason these things exist, like a good reason, you know. And designing those systems is in many ways much harder than designing an individual well-designed site in a small group of developers now you're like now it's metaprogramming now you're saying i have to make the system that lets other people do useful things in a way that in the end comes out with all the attributes that we want but mm-hmm. doesn't require them all to know and see the big picture these frameworks do you have a, like um these frameworks for your site stuff at work i write frameworks no, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what i i'm i always like i'm a framework writer oh i bet you're really good at that I like to make frameworks for myself to use initially because I was, you know, in, in small companies. And so I was making, I I would do stuff myself and then realize I need to generalize this because I keep doing the same stuff. So you write frameworks for yourself uh, and then doing writing frameworks for larger groups of people. And, and yes, you learn from the frameworks that are out there and you obviously end up using frameworks. Sometimes you can build a new framework on top of a bunch of other ones. And But yeah, that's what I like to do. I like to I like to write the tools, and then I like to build things with the tools that I wrote, and lather, rinse, repeat. Like it was, I always used to joke back in the early days of blogging, uh, when people were just starting to get blogs, that like that word had just come into existence, that I thought, you know, I should have one of those things. But I always knew, uh, like, I always imagined what my first post on my blog would be, which turned out not to be the case, because eventually, like, editthispage.com and all that other stuff from, you know... Uh, the frontier guys and everything came out and uh, made this moot. But I said, step one of blogging, if you're me, write a framework to write web applications. Step two, write a blogging engine on top of the framework that you wrote to write a web application. Step three, use that blogging engine to create your blog. Step four, write your first blog entry about your blogging engine on top of your framework. <laughs> but doctor, I am Syracuse. Yeah, that, this totally explains why I did not have a blog for so long, because I was too busy doing other things to do all that until eventually uh, someone said, you don't need to do that. Just click a few couple buttons. That's and so much. That was so much a part of the fun for me. when I My first iteration of Kung Fu Grip was um, a mobile type site. And that was so much of the fun for me, was like just just seeing what that thing could do. But you didn't write movable type. Like that's the that's why you actually got it done. And I didn't because it was like, well movable type is crap uh I, I need to write something better than that before i can you know no i know i know oh classic and meanwhile the thing that runs my current thing that runs hypercritical.co is the biggest piece of crap you've ever seen like it is the, actually the opposite of a framework it was like because at that point i was like look if you're gonna have a blog you can't do that i know you want to just write a framework and then write a blogging engine and then write a blog but you can't uh so but i also couldn't bring myself to use it out of the box thing i'm like well let me write the crappiest thing that could possibly work I ju- because I need to s- remove barriers to me writing anything because I will find an infinite number of excuses why I can never have a blog, but like switch priorities. Now the goal is to just get a blog, right? 
and make the finished product nice, but the tools you use to make the finished product, they only have to work for you for this limited scenario. And like what I have now is kind of silly and ridiculous, but I think it produces a site that loads quickly and looks nice and does what I want it to do and has reasonable markup. Eh, semi-reasonable markup. But like really, I just, you know, after years and years of, uh, you know, this is the opposite side of like, oh, do a quality job. If you get obsessed with that and say, I can't do anything until everything is perfect, like that's that's the other extreme. You will never get anything done. You will never actually have a blog. You'll never actually write anything. So if that is your tendency and if left unchecked by some kind of balancing force, then you will just never have a blog. It's like, you know, try, trying to make the perfect chair uh, and never actually making any chairs. You don't know if you're supposed to be making couches. You don't know anything about it. You never made anything. You just spent the entire time thinking about what the chair should look like. <laughs> Syracuse's incompleteness theorem. <clears throat> it's always there. Bake right into the cost. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. The simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page, website, or online store, you can start building your website today at squarespace.com. You enter the offer code DIFFS at checkout. That'll get you 10% off your first purchase. With easy-to-use tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture every detail of what drives you. Because if it's worth the effort, it is worth sharing with the world. Squarespace puts all the power you need into your hands and takes away the pain points. You won't have to worry about hosting or scaling or what to do if you get stuck with something. And with Squarespace, you will build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of your skill level. There's no coding required. Just get your stuff up. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology to power your site and to ensure security and stability. Their site templates are just stunning to look at, and they all feature responsive design, which is a fancy way of saying your pages will look great on every size and type of device. This is just getting started. Squarespace has tons of awesome features. Baked in, you get 24 by 7 support with live chat and email. They have the Squarespace commerce platform. That allows you to add a store to your Squarespace site. They have the wonderful cover page functionality. You can build great-looking single-page websites so easy. Rock-solid, fast hosting, so much more. You can even stretch Squarespace further by digging into their dev platform. You can put your hands on the actual code. Here's where it gets crazy. If you sign up for a year, you'll also get a free domain name, so you can call your site whatever you want. And Squarespace plans started at a very affordable $12 per month. So please today go start a trial on Squarespace. No credit card is required. Start building that website today. You go to squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, which I'm sure you will, make sure to use the offer code DIFFS. That's D-I-F-F-S. When you check out, that's going to get you 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. I, um, we had a sad family emergency and my wife had to jet away. And so I was doing solo dad duty for, uh, for four days. You, how long were you doing it? I only had like five days, I think, but, uh, there were five pretty packed days. I'm really grateful for school. Yeah. That's what, when they span the weekend, that's difficult to, or, or when they span lots of activities because it just becomes logistically, especially with two <sighs> kids, it becomes logistically difficult to physically get the children to the places where they need to be factoring in traffic and times and stuff like that. Because what you find if you are in a two parent household with two kids is you will schedule their activities with the assumption that there are two people with two cars available to get them. That you're going to have approximately double the existential budget. Yeah. And then suddenly when you take one of those out, you're like, wait, is it even (sighs) possible to get 
these kids to these activities at these times? And and even just not for just the possibilities, but say it is physically possible to do it. What you realize is that to do this, it requires, especially if you have kids who can't be left home alone because they're too young to be left home alone, it requires bringing one kid along to the other activity, to the other kids' activities. <laughs> oh, they love and that. And they hate that. And it just, like, you're starting off on the wrong foot of getting the kids all cranky and bored and frustrated and angry at their sibling and angry at you, which is the perfect environment to then bring them home and motivate them to do their homework and take showers and do all the other stuff they have to do. So it's just problem on top of problem. The only thing you really have going for you, and this is terrible to say, is that they li- they miss the other parent you know they can they can be subdued by by their sadness <laughs> oh that's nice it takes them down a notch huh yeah exactly you take the edge off until they get angry like why did mommy <sighs> go she always travels i just i feel like well i mean just a couple things that you know should not go without stipulation um my wife is works way harder than me at everything she's way better at it and she just does more of it and so i just want to get that out of the way i gotta just get that out of the way um, but all of those particular chips, boy, they really come crashing down when I'm on my own. When I, when I have to go like, oh my God, you did all of that this morning and you got to work or, or and I'm not even getting into all the things that I don't do as well as her. And I got a whole big list of all the things I do not do as well as mommy. And boy, did I hear about it. But you know, mostly we, we had it, we have it pretty easy, but I guess what I'm trying to say Let's say you just want to have the minimally viable child. You want a child that doesn't stink and has shoes that are tied on and something in a bag called lunch. It's like, forget, I mean, I realize I sound like a real simple magazine or something, but like, forget about doing that great. I just, we barely made it not being late every day. And each day I thought I was getting better at it and we were still almost late every day. It's baked into the price. The bar, the, the bar for me is like, when you look at the calendar of all the things, it's like, did the children arrive at all the places they were supposed to arrive at? Like at the times they were supposed to arrive. Yeah. That's the, that's the baseline. That means getting to school when you're supposed to get to school. That means getting picked up when you're supposed to be getting picked up where you're not like leaving them hanging at wherever they are, you know, and, and forcing one of the adults there to like wait until you show up late or whatever. They get to all their activities successfully. And boy, I don't, I'm, you know, with the whole debate over like over scheduling your kids or whatever, I am at one extreme where I would never schedule my kids for anything. I don't think Nothing. my wife is at the other extreme, but she's certainly yes. farther along the spectrum than I am. And so uh, my kids seem to have a lot of my genes in this regard because as I take them to all their activities, one of the biggest factors is that to varying degrees, uh, they're all, they all don't want to do the activities that they are scheduled to do. The supposed fun <laughs> activities. You, that, like, you, and you're in the word. activity it meets resistance. Every and single you, one. And you... Um, it, it makes it double painful, though, because you wouldn't have signed them up for that. You don't want them to do it. They don't want to do that, but you also have to have a brave face, right? Like, ah, got to go to soccer. That's the thing you're doing. Right. I mean, obviously, school is an easy one. Like, you know, oh, they don't want to go to school. Like, yeah, fine. So kids don't Nobody want to go to school. Nobody wants to go anymore. to school. Suck it right. up. Some, some, you know, some, again, it varies. It varies by kid. It varies by age. It varies, you know, whatever. But school is, then they have to go to that. And that, so that, you feel like you have a good sales, like, like you're going to school. Like, and then you make up all the excuses or whatever. But, but the activities, some of them is like, if they're school, like academic type tutoring activities, they don't want to do that because it seems like more school. But even the supposedly fun activities, somehow... When mommy's gone, there's even increased resistance to going to swim lessons or whatever, you know, fun things you want to do. And it's just like, 
can anything be easy? Can't. Because then it's like you're on a tight schedule anyway. You do not have time to debate the merits of whether or not you're actually going to the swim lessons that have already been paid for that you've been going to for three weeks, right? Like, right. Is, is it time to have a knockdown drag out, like putting, you know, to the point where kids are putting their feet down and said, no, I'm not going to this. I'm never going to it again. You can't make me. Like, that does not help your schedules, let me tell you. Mm. It does not help your timelines, right? And you have to try to, that's why I'm, that's why the, one of the biggest challenges can we get the children to the activities at the time? And so even if you get there at the time, if you have to, like, if you were, like, you know, to, to use extreme, which is not an actual thing that happens, but if you had to, like, put them in a burlap sack and bring them there, it's like, ah, I got the kid there on time. That doesn't count. Because when you get them there, they're not going to do the activity. You have to get them there in, in a mental state where they are hopefully enthusiastic about the activity or feeling good about it, but at the very least, willing to do the activity, right? Because just... Yeah, so I think I did pretty well in the five days that I had there. I spent a little bit of time stuck in traffic going between things, and it cut it really close in a couple of them because it was like, you know, the extra degree. This is like a reality show where they throw you the challenge, and the challenge was, even though my wife had taken care of all the school supply buying, or so she thought, before she left, of course my son comes back at some point in his, like, second day of middle school or whatever and says, there's still some things that I need. I'm like, well, don't you, didn't, didn't mommy get all the stuff? Isn't it in a big box in your room? I'm like, no, actually, I still need a few extra things. And by the way, I need them by tomorrow. And so drop them <laughs> off at one activity. <laughs> off to Staples. Yeah. With my daughter in the car. Go from that activity to Staples with the intention to get the things that are supposedly missing and drive back to, to pick him up. And the amount of time required between drop off, go to Staples, come back was barely within the amount of time that he was at this, you know, hour this, and a half long this is activity. your This is your Kessel run. Yeah, no, it was unbelievable. The traffic was off the charts. And then, of course, Staples, on the third day of school, Staples is like the fifth circle of hell, where, it, you know, you, you see all the parents in there with their kids, all the people who didn't do what my wife did, which is buy things ahead of time and get it, like, these are the, the people who are doing things late. And there I am, hunting the aisles for the things and getting in this huge line, like the line that goes off into the section with the mice in Staples. Like, the line is not by the, the things. It's There's, like, a gap. There's, like, the line... And then there's a gap, and then there's a bunch of people standing next to HP printers, and they're not, they're waiting to get into the line. And there's oh, a staple employee. they do a, Chris, a Christmas story on you. The line's back there. Yeah, exactly. They're letting you into uh, the line, and then like you have to provide uh, like a corridor for carts. That happens the safe way. You got to have a corridor for the carts to get through. But it's like uh, you go down here by the lime juice. Yeah, and then you're looking at the lines, and you realize those people have been in front of that register for five minutes. What in the world are they doing? They're not taking payment things Ugh. out? The person is not scanning items? Are they having a conversation? Is there a debate? Is there some philosophical argument about whether they're going to buy things or not? It's like, ring up the items, give them payment, put them in a bag, and make them go. And they're just sitting there. And then you see them start stacking up. You're like, one, that one's stalled out. Then you look at the other one, like, those people have been there for three cycles, too. What are they doing? And then a third one, you're like, fully 50% of these cashiers are occupied by people with school supplies sitting on the counter, nevertheless not completing transactions. And oh, you wonder, my God. You wonder, what is, it, what is it that's happening there? But you try to you try to remain calm as you look right. at your this watch. Is, this is water. Yeah. Right. As, as you realize the, you know, the time, that, based on the time it took you to get here, it, which is like, you know, 0.75 miles away from the place you need to go, but it's stop-and-go traffic on this two-lane road, but there's no escape. Boy, that was not... And, of course, you know, they have the younger kid with me who... This is, you know, just loves. Then you have to buy her a bribe gift. I was going to ask you if you bribe. You seem like you wouldn't be a briber. I'm a huge briber. I didn't. I wouldn't offer this, but she knows that. Like she's got me over a barrel. It's like I'm. I'm at this place. I'm bored. 
I don't want to be here. I shouldn't even be going on this trip with you at all, but I have to be. I want a notebook or whatever. It's like, fine. Add the I want pile. justice. Like, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. I don't, you know, that, that is, means nothing. And so, yeah, we barely made it back. I mean, maybe we were like a couple minutes late, but no, it's no fun. It's no fun. And yeah, you you know, like there's there's just a lot to do. There's a lot to do, and you don't realize it until more than half of it is not done. Because my wife does most of this stuff. Uh, my tool for dealing with it is to give myself huge amounts of time. So I wife, always think it's going to make a difference, and it very rarely does. Well, maybe I added. I started adding half an hour in the morning. I started adding half an hour. We start half an hour earlier. We should be able to get from mostly in bed to on our way to school. It's a 10-minute walk, eight, 10-minute walk. Um, we should be able to do that in one hour. I At first, I cut it short on about 40 minutes because I wanted to sleep. And then it's like, nope, we're just gonna, I'm just going to have to get up at 5.30 for this to happen. Yeah, that's, you have to end up doing that. Like, it, it's a much more well-oiled machine when it's the two of us, I feel like. When I, but I need, more than, I need more than just the time the two of us. It, our normal schedule, we've varied this many, many times. The normal schedule is alarm goes off. I control the alarm for some unknown reason. Somehow in our marriage, I ended up being the one who controls the alarm to wake up in the morning. But that's my job. Uh, 6.30-ish, alarm goes off. My wife goes in the shower. I go downstairs, empty the dishwasher, any dishes in the drying rack get put away, uh, get the kids breakfast, wake up both of the children, bring them down, make sure they're in their seats, feed them their breakfast because they're still not quite at the phase where they're doing that themselves, although that's coming for the older one soon. Uh, And once they're happily eating their breakfast, then my wife is done with the shower, she comes down, I go up, I shower, she makes their lunches and then leaves about the time I'm coming out of the shower. Then, So she's gone already. She's going to work early at this point. I come down, make sure they get everything packed up in their backpacks, make sure they get out to the bus stops on time, make sure they bring their lunches with them, so on and so forth. Then they go, and then finally I go to work. And so that it's a pretty well-oiled machine in terms of Dividing a labor, us taking turns in the shower, one is up and one is down. And it's, it's a, but it's also a known amount of task and a known amount of time. And there's built in like uh, error checking to like account for things like we're running a little behind here. Between the two of you, you've done that enough that you're able to sort of like react in real time to changes in the system and be able to accommodate it. Yeah. And we're willing to accept the, the trade offs. For instance, my wife has to, like, we wake up at the same time, uh, but. She goes to work earlier. Uh, I need more time in the morning to get going. I'm not a morning person. So she's she's ready to go and she's out of there. Um, for me, I wouldn't want to do that. I don't want to wake up in the morning. I don't. I can't go to work there. I need. I need to. You know, that the most valuable time for me in the morning is when I've successfully seen both kids off to school and I'm the only one in the house and I can have five minutes to myself. That is a super important time <laughs> for me that I need to have. Right. But on the other hand, she leaves after the lunches are made. I'm left with two kids that may or may not be in the mood to get their stuff ready in time to go for the bus. You talk, you're talking about when you're on your own? No, just like when there's two of us. Because, oh, okay. So I'm saying like she, you know, I go out for the shower, she comes down, makes the lunches, then she leaves, right? And so I come down from the shower about the time that she's going out the door. Well, I've got two kids and myself and I need to get them out to the bus stop. So I have to convince them that school is a thing that they're doing today. I have to convince them that, yes, indeed, the bus will come whether you're ready or not. I have to convince them that you think it will take you three minutes to put your shoes on, but history has shown it will not because they will be 
a sock crisis, a shoe crisis, a pant crisis, a notebook crisis. There are many different crises in the morning that can make the activity of getting you actually out of the house uh, much more difficult. That's that's what I was going to say. It's It becomes, you know, like toward the end of Apollo 13, or you think about the end of The Martian, and you're like, wow, that just got a lot worse. Like in a way that we've, you know, we know this is already going to be like a pretty difficult operation, and we really did not need that extra wrinkle. And like it was my own hubris, John, my own hubris as a grown man to think that I could master this over four mornings. And you could do a very sad college, like independent film about these four mornings because my hubris grew each day. I think it's like whack-a-mole. I think I've solved yesterday's problem. And now there's a new thing today, a new wrinkle. Maybe she just feels like testing this one thing a little bit more. And I... I'm the Eddie Albert's, Albert's character. I'm like the Green Acres guy who's like the only sane, you know, the, because I'm the only sane person in the place, that also makes me the only insane person in the place. We're like, there's no reason. We were doing so well. We were doing so well. We knew you wanted dinosaur eggs. Ha ha. Learn she likes dinosaur eggs, oatmeal. I'll get some dinosaur eggs, oatmeal. Hey, it's a treat. I make her a bowl of dinosaur eggs, oatmeal. It's a beautiful bowl of dinosaur eggs, oatmeal. She gets the face, the I'm just about to cry face. And she says, there's too much water in here. <laughs> yeah, no, I have the same one. I, do, I, I, I pour the milk. There's one of my jobs is pouring the, pour the milk and the cereal, right? That's my, when both of us are there, that's my job, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Somehow, on a very critical day, when it was essentially the last bowl of a, of a particular uh, oh, kind, of, a kind of cereal, like this was it. This was the last quality bowl until the crumbs. And I was so thankful that I had this one because shopping was scheduled for the next day, you know? So, like, this is it. I poured the milk in. I already have, you know, you learn from experience, like don't pour the milk until they're seated in front of it because if they don't see the milk go in, then it's soggy, even if it was 30 seconds before that, right? So pour the milk in, and apparently I poured the milk in wrong somehow. I don't know how it was wrong. Mm. It was the same as I've always done it before in the same amount, but there was something, there was something upsetting about it. That bowl of cereal was just done. And it's like, have you budgeted for a cereal crisis? I'd budgeted for a sock mm. crisis, a shoe crisis, uh, and maybe like a... Uh, track practice crisis, a deodorant crisis. I have many crises budgeted for. I did not have time for a cereal crisis because I had no backup plans. You just have to like figure that out. And by the way, getting them out the door and dealing with their crises, when I, that's that's when two of us are there. When one of us is there, it means I've already been awake since like 5.30 or 6, depending on how much time I gave myself, and have already tried to pre-flight everything. Like, this is the thing. My wife makes their lunches in like one quarter of the time it takes me to make their lunches. Certainly one half the time. I take... Yeah tremendous amount of time to make their lunches and never get any faster at it i know this is the thing that i'm slow at and that i'm not good at so i give myself a huge amount of time to do it but that's not that's easy because the kids are still asleep at that point uh once they wake up then the clock is really ticking then but there's there's such an impossible number of variables is part of the problem i mean you think you've accounted for mostly what goes well and poorly in a one or two person situation and you add some padding to it, like any kind of rookie project manager, you say, ha ha, I'm going to slap an extra 20% on here and not tell anybody. And that seems like that's going to work, but there are so many failure vectors to this. In the case of the dinosaur eggs, I made it with a pack of dinosaur eggs. She just about cried. And I said, oh, no, 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 it's okay. We'll we'll add some, because, you know, I don't want to have an emotional meltdown, you know? I, I don't like that. So here, we'll take this second pack of dinosaur eggs and put that into augmented a little bit. Okay, so she walks through with that. She's sad. She's, not, she's sitting on her bed, reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and just about to cry. She's so sad about the state of the dinosaur eggs. I said, give me, give me a do-over. So now I got to do a second bowl 
of dinosaur eggs, which she demands be two packages of dinosaur eggs because I'm such an idiot at pouring hot water into a bowl that I will pour too much in. I say, this is not a problem. I understand what half of a cup of water means. I can do this. I put in two things of dinosaur eggs. I make the eggs. Verge of tears a second time. I have done it wrong. And if you're, if you're working ahead of me in this problem, let's get to the third time that I made two packages of dinosaur eggs. By the way, at this point, we've got to be out the door in eight minutes. She has, not, she has not gotten dressed. She has not brushed hair. She has not brushed teeth. We have not even gotten to the point where she lets me know, oh, by the way, it's gym day, and i got to wear high tops, which take an extra long time to lace. And so then uh, there's a problem because now, uh, now they're, they're, they're too dry, the dinosaur eggs. <laughs> And then the shoe crisis. So we're like, and you know, by the time you get to the shoes, you talk about the shoe crisis. I think it is almost always the shoe crisis. Why? Because whatever terrible morning you're having, whatever slips and slides and scope creep you have had in your morning, you are nowhere until you get to the point of the shoes. Whatever problems you got, the shoes, do you follow though? Like you could have, if everything goes flawlessly, the shoes could still make everything fall apart. But when it's not all going flawlessly, the shoe part is it's always going to be where you get the okay, we need to put the shoe on the foot. And that that's where it all like that's where the it gets ugly. Yeah, and I'm if there are older people from an older generation listening to this, I'm sure they're all thinking and just to, to recognize that I think we both realize this as well. This goes better. This is you're reaping what you sow. You when you are on your own. If you had it's, it's, spent, it's baked into the baked into the cost. If you had spent the rest of your child's life conditioning them, correctly setting yeah. expectations of what is expected to them, then when the time comes, you won't have to have this ridiculous negotiation. Like, oh, how do you want your breakfast? Oh, you don't, you're done pleased with your breakfast? I'll just do it just the way. Like, you'll be like, look, this is the breakfast you get. And you eat it, and if you don't eat it, you're hungry, and you regret that, and the next day you aren't like, if you had done that earlier... I didn't even have breakfast till I was 25. Then, then the cereal <laughs> crisis would certainly be lessened, uh, but probably wouldn't happen at all, because the, the parents are saying, um, you know, you the, who is the, in charge here? Is the kid in charge, or are you, are you in charge? Are you still spending your time like your child's an infant, saying, oh, what displeases you, oh princess? How may I serve you correctly? Oh, have I poured the milk incorrectly? I will try again and again, wasting time and money, as opposed to the way we were all brought up, which is like, here's your breakfast, eat it. I said eat it. No, there is no other option, like no argument, just like that's what you have to do, right? Yeah. So if you have put in that time, if you have a correctly trained and conditioned child, uh, it will make your life more convenient. I think this generation of parents is trying to strike a slightly different balance in that the most important thing is not how obedient your child is, but there's some recognition of the emotional well-being of the child more than in perhaps our generation, but it's still a balance. It also overlooks the fact that there may be a reason that you decided not to take that route. Right. So I yeah, mean, like, people always people present that case that kind of like, oh, in my day with this, we, you know, we had to eat buggy whips and we liked it. But, you know, uh, maybe one reason that that people and I don't mean to sound defensive because I know I'm a wuss about this stuff and that's a decision that I made. I don't feel bad about it. But when I hear that kind of like, well, first of all, I think it's BS when people are all like, oh, you know, this is how we used to do it. And this is how I did it with my kids. And that's so easy to say when your kids are growing up and hate you. But, you know, the thing is, like, maybe one reason a lot of people don't want to do that is because they saw how it turned out. And maybe they were very, very unhappy people because their parents were, you know, 
being demanding in that way. Or they don't, they, they, most people don't recognize it. Most people don't recognize that, that they were sublimating that frustration and anger into other destructive behaviors. They're like, oh, I love my parents. They were great. But then, you know, you know anyway, it's like we discussed before. It's a, it's a continuum because my parents are like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to knock my kids uh, on the head with a knuckle when they don't eat their food because I had that done to me and I realized that was over the line. But I will you know, draw a hard line that you don't get to choose what you eat. And this is, you know, like, it's just, I feel like we're getting better. Um, but there, you can go too far where you were just allowing your, your child to, to, you know, run roughshod over you entirely. And you're, you're failing as a parent by not, uh, setting boundaries. But to the difficult situation with the single parenting is even if you come to what you think is a reasonable balance where your kids understand what's expected of them and have age appropriate levels of independence and crises and so on and so forth and that each one is manageable and can be endured and entertained to the extent that it is but the kids always get where they're supposed to be on time have a generally good attitude and over time improve to say okay well we don't have sock crises anymore we've got we've gotten over that hurdle because now your daughter is three instead of two you know like you know like you feel like you're making good progress there feel like you're striking a good balance for your kid and your parenting style then pull one parent away now the kid misses the other parent and has a heightened level of anxiety you have a heightened level of anxiety because you are trying to take on more and the kids are sad because they miss their mom or whatever right and just that little extra bit can be enough to get you over the edge it's like well we had a good balance here but all of a sudden what would normally be a cereal crisis of like oh there's too much milk and you would be like well i'll just pour a little more cereal and they would be fine or just say, you know what, you take over pouring this year. Like any of those options that would have been open to you before, because your daughter is on the verge of tears because she misses her mom and doesn't realize that's why she's on the verge of tears. Because of that, a lot of options that are available to you before aren't available now. And now you realize how close you were to the ragged edge of what is possible with your child and your history of parenting. And maybe that just means you blew it for the past, you know, um, you know, seven or eight years coming up to this point. But nothing you can do about it now, except for you know, make adjustments going forward. Right? Yeah. <laughs> possible. I also like, you know, this is another one of those things though, where you're like, somebody says something and it's like, Ooh, you hear like a sick burn. And then, you know, some certain kinds of sick burns, I find myself saying, okay. And so then what happens next? Somebody goes, well, you know, you're a dumbass for having this permissive relationship with your child. That's not preparing them for the evil world. And it's no wonder you're having a bad morning. And then I'm inclined to think like, so what now? So, okay, you win, so we just shouldn't go to school today because I'm a bad parent? You know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, I feel like the kind of people who say that kind of stuff about other parents, and everybody does it to an extent. Like Scott Simpson said, there's only, there's only two kinds of parents in the world, right? There's the kinds of parents, the, the dumbasses who let their kids do anything, and then the way too permissive parents, the only perfect parent in the world is me. But like when people say that, I'm always, I feel like that is not, and I'll just reveal my dumb, you know, sensitive guy liberal bias here, but that seems uniquely tone deaf to what probably actually happened in your child's life. When people say things as kind of like that big pronouncement to make them look good, that sometimes feels like Monday morning quarterbacking at best. We're like, you know, if you've actually been through stuff with people, the more stuff with people that you go through, the more likely you are to go, yeah, you know what, I know that stuff can be really complicated. But but that's, and the fact that you would like try to go to this kind of super butch position about it, and like try and present some kind of like civic and ethical uh, lesson to somebody with that kind of dressing down, it's, just, it's something about that feels weird to me. Oh, yeah, no, they just, 
reinforcing the idea that like any doubts they may have had how uh, you know how they've optimized for their own comfort at the expense of their child's uh, you know physical or emotional well-being is further you know they, they just you can justify that to themselves by repeating the mantra that you're supposed to be super strict with your kids and and so on and so forth that's that's the the harsh side of it the less harsh side is all kids are different and sometimes parents end up having kids who are very independent and mature and obedient and generally happy and you know well adjusted and it's frankly easier to you know it's like oh well you know you must be doing something wrong because my kids were able to do this better than your kids at a sooner age and just you know they don't like and and on the spectrum of uh, how easy kids are to deal with our kids are easy compared to a bunch of other kids too like so it's oh it's it's not even a contest like just general recognition that like it's not it's not the same situation and like i think like i said the long-term trend is resisting the idea that the goal of parenting is to optimize for the comfort of the parent parents lives shouldn't be inconvenienced by children parents shouldn't be bothered by children the most important thing you can do with the child is to train them to the point where they have the least impact on your life and speak when only speak when spoken to and do all the things that are required to them and that will prepare them for life and that is an extreme that i think most parents today reject it's just a question of how much further down that thing are we going to creep and every generation is more permissive than the previous one spoiling their kids making a group making a generation of entitled self-centered children like every generation that's true it'll be true over the next generation too when our kids raise their kids they will be saying my kid my parents are much more strict you shouldn't be like it's <laughs> it's inevitable like that is the the direction we're going and i think the reason we're going in that direction is because it is actually better to parent your children with some acknowledgement that they are actually little people like that's that's what it comes down to and not you're not like trying to simply find a way so that these things that you produce have the least impact on your life right yeah, yeah. There's there's another Syracusean point to this. I I won't articulate well here, but you know, first of all, and I, I might be repeating what you're saying, but I think part of it, what, what the phrase you're using about optimizing for the comfort of the parents. I mean, everybody does that. I mean, we do stuff for like she gets to play on the iPad because she enjoys it, and we need to not be doing a thing for a minute. Like, do we definitely do things like that? I I'm not. Well, that's ashamed. not optimizing for. Optimizing for would be. Um, that all the rest of the day when you're not letting her go on the iPad. All the rest of that time, that also she shouldn't be bothering you. Right. But I guess, I guess I'm just trying to say that I feel like I, I wonder how often what gets passed off as like this is the kind of tough talk that a kid needs to survive in this world or however you want to frame it and put it in a different way. I mean, I wonder how much of that really is a is camouflage for what you're describing, which is like, you know, I just – I just don't want to be bothered by you and I'm sick of tying your shoes. For a long time we you know, I got I got a little frustrated where I would say, Hey, look, you know, when we have a meal, like if you want a drink, like I'll you know I can provide a drink, but if you want a drink and you haven't gotten what you wanted, you can get up and get that. And this is gonna sound really lame. But I re- I've came to realize in time that's kind of just a fun thing we do. Yeah, she's being lazy, yeah, I'm being annoyed, but she just likes it when I get her a drink and it's kind of part of our ritual now. And I don't mind it because like I'm not sure how much better a person I'm making her by constantly browbeating her about needing to go get her own goddamn glass of water. I'm not, I don't think that's gonna, I, I don't know that that's gonna make a huge difference in what kind of a good person she is. Yeah, a lot of that, uh, I think, you know, not that I'm gonna blame this all on, on uh, dads, but the, the the generations prior to us, you know, a couple of decades or a couple hundred years in the past, the, the whole idea was that the, 
mother would be the doting, caring one, and the father would be the disciplinarian, right? And a lot of that is connected to what nowadays everyone calls toxic masculinity, but I would just generally call like the, the, the idea of masculinity of like, you got to toughen these kids up. They need to, you know, they, they need to understand that the world is not going to care for them like their mother cares for them. So they need to prepare, be prepared for that. Um, and the modern form of that is like making sure your children are independent, that they can do things on their own, that they, that they develop along a curve that shows before I couldn't tie my shoes and now I can, before I couldn't cut my own food. And now I can. And, you know, before I couldn't make my own meals, and now I can. You're trying to get them to the point where they'll be a functioning adult. But traveling along that curve, everyone agrees, like, yeah, I should totally do that. And you can argue about the stages of the curve or whatever, because if you don't do that, like, you're going to be 18 years old. And it's like, okay, now you have no skills required to, uh, it's not like you magically get them when you become an adult. Now, suddenly, I know how to do everything. No, you got to develop them over the time. But the traveling on the curve is not the part that's, arguable it's this sort of idea that the way to move along that curve is to is to be berated for being inferior like that it's negative reinforcement and shaming that you got to toughen these kids up and if you can't do that you're bad and Mm -hmm. but they should should internalize that in a way so you don't have to keep yelling at them now they just know they're bad and like how is that ever going to be the kid who tells you they're that they're gay you right, know? Like, it's like you just like, if you can't if you can't tie your shoes, it's your fault and you're bad and you should feel bad about it. And the only way to get them is like no one's going to tie your shoes. That's just going to be you're it. Not reinforcing like, responsibility. You're 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 reinforcing negativity. It's like wait a second. Is your goal to get them to know how to tie their shoes? Because we all agree on that goal. Because if that's your goal, depending on your kid, perhaps the worst possible way to get them to learn how to tie their shoes is to make them feel terrible for not being able to tie their shoes. Like, maybe that's the best way in your kid. Maybe your kid responds to that perfectly and it will totally rise to the challenge. But for so many kids, like, you immediately lose sight of the goal. You immediately lose sight of, like, are we just trying to make sure they can tie their shoes? Or is this now an idea where we're trying to assert our ideal of masculinity and toughness on our children? Or, like, like just reassert what we think is our, our performance of masculinity to say... I have to show that I'm the tough dif- disciplinarian because that's what I expected of me as the father, and I'm going to do that performance. Mm-hmm. And I've totally now forgotten about and don't care about whether this is the most effective way to get my kid to tie his shoes, because suddenly the goal is not to get your kid to be able to tie his shoes. You've totally forgotten about the goal. It's just all about a performance and reinforcing your own sense of self by saying, I'm tough. I'm not letting it, you know, accepting the criticism from the other parents of saying, you're not being tough enough, you're coddling your kids, and I'm going to counter my feelings of uh, in, you know, inferiority, or my or my pants crapping fear of failure by propping it up with this feeling that I am unfailingly imperious in how I deal with you. Right, and th- and then like it, it immediately goes by the wayside of like, yeah, you know, because because if you have made it a game or you made a financial reward, or did some other thing that people can keep their minds around without immediately discarding it to say, uh, get given this kid, what's the best way to get this kid to be able to tie their shoes? and not suffer traumatic mental damage in the process, right? <laughs> and then then it becomes like a puzzle. It's like, well, different kids respond to different things, you know? Like, And we all figure it out for our kids. Like, That's what we're trying to do with good parenting. It's exhausting. Like, oh, I got to figure out what every single kid, how, every, how each kid learns and what motivates them and when they're receptive to instruction and when they're not, that's exhausting. Why can't I just treat all kids the same and force them to do things because I'm bigger and stronger and yell real loudly? And use negative reinforcement consistently and just train them like they're, I was going to say like a dog, but people really shouldn't treat dogs like that either, right? Uh -uh. 
it's a uniform system that works uniform code of military justice uh and that's how you raise children and like but it's it's like the same way it's the same way that somebody with a i don't want to go too far here but it's the same way that somebody would treat day laborers that 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 there's this certain way that I, i my toughness needs to never be questioned you need to always feel like i know you're trying to pull something on me like you're never going to steal from my till you are never going to be late and i feel like there's a there's a similar feeling of the way that you would interact with laborers who are strangers as the way you would act with your kid which is that like you know what they say hit the child every day if if you don't know what it's for they will i think franklin said um i think that's that's the kind of feeling but all of that aside and whether it's effective or I think it, even whether it feels good to do, I think it feels um, it feels safe. It feels it feels safe, and you are now less vulnerable if you are consistently that way, which makes it all about you. Because because what you do is you have results. You can say my kid does the things that I tell them when I tell them to, whether they're doing them out of fear or not, whatever. But you can say here's the results. Can't argue with that. And also, I feel that I have performed masculinity to the public to say, I am a manly man, I am tough, and my kids behave. So if I see you with your kids who don't behave, and you're a wuss, you've just failed on both fronts, and right. really don't care about the emotional health of your kids and how much they're sublimating the the anger expressed uh, by their parents and them or whatever, you know. So, and again, it's, it's, it's a continuum. We're all moving along it. We will be the, we will be the abusive barbarians two generations from now. Um, but I think things are going in the right direction, and it really is exhausting to have to figure <laughs> out how to how each individual child responds to the different things that you can do as a parent to help them, you know, grow and and become able to do more things and grow as a person. Like it's 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 just exhausting, right? <laughs> Especially if I mean I don't know if these kids are out there, but kids who respond in any reasonable way to negative reinforcement, my kids don't. They are really bad at negative... Re- like, it is perhaps the least efficient way to get them to do anything. doesn't mean there's none of it. It just means that, like, if you have the luxury in this moment of saying, my goal is to get the kids to be able to ride a bicycle or whatever, negative reinforcement is the wrong tool for that job, for my kids specifically. Other kids, again, they may rise to the challenge. If you present to them the idea that, you know... If you don't learn to ride a bicycle by such and such date, we'll give your bicycle to uh, kids down the block. That would be an example of negative reinforcement. People love those kinds of anecdotes. I, I put I put a put a plate of peas in front of my kid, and when they didn't eat it, I threw the food food away and put them to bed. Boy, they'll never make that mistake again. Right, and, and I mean it, it's just varying levels of negative reinforcement. But the riding the bike one is a good example because it's a it's not really essential in life, and b you could say if you don't learn to ride your bike by the end of the week, I'm giving your bike away. That's negative reinforcement. That's a threat. You're threatening them if you don't accomplish this goal. Like, and some kids like, may rise to that challenge, and they may feel great sense of accomplishment when they do it. Um, uh, other kids will refuse to touch that bicycle and say, "Fine, give it away and hate you forever." And if your goal was to get them to ride a bicycle, that was the wrong approach with that particular kid. But it's to me, it almost feels like when you think about motivating, trying to motivate people through fear, um, anxiety, doubt. There are so many knock-on consequences from that. And you can claim that you were successful at it, but to me, that's a little like saying you trained a mouse to run through a maze and find cheese by basically literally squeezing the mouse and making it walk with your hands, making it walk through the maze and jamming it into walls. Like, you could you could claim some level of success with that, but I'm not sure that's really a scientifically thorough experiment. Yeah, and the, obviously the thing with negative reinforcement is, like, eventually when your child is an adult and goes off and goes their life 
are, do they now require, like I said, I'm making them independent. If they can't accomplish anything without threats, intimidation, uh, consequences, and perhaps even violence, who is going to fulfill that role of the person who threatens them? They, are they going to become their own disciplinarian? Because that's not particularly healthy where they're constantly berating themselves. Like, it's such a, it's such a weird, you know, <laughs> we all have to look at our own psychoses and we have, if, if you happen to have a child who is genetically related to you, maybe you have some slightly higher chance of understanding what the hell's going on in their set in their head because you can be like, well, some portion of this child is me in some weird mixture. This is one of my favorite things I never knew you thought about a lot that I've learned since doing the show. I'm fascinated by how often you seem to go, not straight to, but you go like, well, a lot of this could be explained by genetics by like, this is my kid. This this is half my kid, so it shouldn't be su- surprising that these kinds of patterns emerge. Yeah, not maybe not half. It's obviously it's a mixture, like, and it all gets mutated <laughs> and weird, and like, right? So, right, but but at least you have a, a slim, like, a, perhaps a slightly higher contributed. chance than you would have otherwise, <laughs> because you were a kid, and if you remember your childhood, like, that's all you have to go on. You all have to go on is your experience being parented and your experience Ugh. as a child, and if you see in your children traits that you remember about yourself as a child. I think that's an important advantage because you can say, I don't really know what it's like for this kid, but I see that he's a little bit like me in this way. And I can think about how that was like, like you just, you just need want something to hold on to. So they're just not like, they are an entirely different person. They are not half you and half your partner. Like it's just, but just, just to get something to put your fingernail on, like a tiny little handhold. Cause that, that's all you've got. It's the only tool you've got. And you could take that too far and be like, oh, you're just like me. You look like me. You sound like me. You have the same personality as me when I was a kid. Therefore, I know exactly what you're going through. A, you don't. And B, they're not. So, but also, you know, like, like go to straight, straight to Syracuse of 316. Like, how well do you really remember what actually happened? If you remember anything from that, which oftentimes you may not remember your childhood as well as you think, what you'll remember. How can I put it? I think for me, I would describe it as what I remember are the remnants of a feeling, the rem- remnants of a strong feeling. And I think, to use your phrase, I think I back solve from a feeling to remember what actually happened a lot of the time. It's that feeling. It's that feeling, that emotion, that like, I don't know what you want to call it, but like that's what sticks with you for years and years and years. And the more times you run that little photo over the copy machine, the the you know wider and wider it's going to get until all you have left is just the memory of a memory of a feeling. You don't really remember what happened on that day. You remember how it made you feel. Oh, the, the worst part is uh, for most memories like that, especially in young childhood, you don't actually even have any memories at all. All you remember is the feeling of your parents recounting the story as they remember it to oh, you. Oh, 100%. Right. So then you didn't you don't have the memory yourself. Your parents probably don't have the memory exactly. And all you remember is how you felt when they conveyed to either you or other people the memory of you doing the thing. And it's just like 700 degrees removed. But, but like I said, it's all you've got to, to hang, you know, to just get some kind of handhold on there. Or, or even, you know, even if your children are not genetically related to you in any way, like... Are they going through a similar experience that you went through? Do they exhibit personality traits that you recognize in yourself in some degree? Um, or are they utterly unlike you can ever remember being or feeling? And, you know, and having having two kids, like, it's shocking how different two kids from the same parents can end up being. We all know if we were in, in families with multiple siblings or we know siblings, like, it's the same two sets of genes, but two wildly different results. And then you just have to totally adjust your parenting style for each different kid in each different situation and like i said this is all exhausting the uniform code of military justice would be much easier system 
it's just that us touchy feely modern day parents probably couldn't you know live with ourselves if, if that's what we were doing because we I think we just recognize that's that's not the way to do it and like i don't know i don't i don't know how i guess they're just people didn't have the luxury that we have of the amount of free time and mental energy to devote to this stuff like they're too busy making a living the, the, like the, the idea of how much free time oh, they had, too, they had time too many i mean my wife is the youngest of seven they took care of each other they they beat each other up they cook for each other they you know they kept each other occupied yeah, and, and that's the other thing of like you know everyone adjusts the situation, including the kids. If the parents don't have as much free time because they're working double shifts, the kids will adjust to that reality because they have to. They have no choice. Like it's not as if like oh you're being a bad parent because you don't have as much time. Like you got to do what you got to do, right? And the kids will adjust to that. And it's like well, see if the kids will adjust, then maybe every parent should be like that. You know, like it starts to yeah yeah. Parenting is very fraught. The whole idea of a good parent versus a bad parent is just conceptually. Uh, not a not a good way to to frame the issue, but anyway, yeah, single parenting, and this is like obviously we're all just two dads who don't do anything, complaining about oh, oh that's complaining the about thing the four, is... complaining about the four days that we were sole parent. Obviously, people are single parents for their entire lives with way more children uh, than we have, with way higher, way more problems. With... But you know what's most telling is my wife doesn't feel the need to go on a podcast and complain about how tough it was when I was away for four days. <laughs> right? No, it's that it's it's in some ways it's relaxing. So you're not there to you're not there to screw things up. 